Welcome to the BMJ Roundtable podcast, following immediately on from the pre-election health hustings at the British Library. I have round the table with me six people who've been listening to the debate, and I'm going to ask them first just to each go around and say who we are. So I'll just start. Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ. Uh, Jeremy Taylor, Chief Executive of National Voices. Johnny Marshall, Director of Policy at the NHS Confederation. Jane Dacre, President, Royal College of Physicians. Anita Charlesworth, Chief Economist at the Health Foundation. Mark Porter, Chair of Council of the British Medical Association. Nigel Edwards, Chief Executive of the Nuffield Trust. And I'm going to ask them first uh, to tell us what they thought of what they've just heard. Jeremy Taylor from National Voices. Well, it was a lively and good debate, I think, that benefited from being in front of a relatively expert audience. Um, And there was some beef in it. Um, It was very interesting to hear the level of passion and detail about, for example, mental health and social care, which I think we wouldn't have seen to the same extent five years ago. Uh, Huge rowing in different ways about money. So you could say the whole debate in many ways was about money um, and perhaps not enough about actual patients and their actual experiences. Thank you, Jeremy. Nigel Edwards. Well, I, do, I, do. I think we got probably a bit more heat than light because of the arguments ab- ab- about money. Um, I, I come from a school of thought that says we probably don't want politicians getting into vast amounts of detail about exactly how care should be provided. And I felt that the manifestos of some of the manifestos have gone rather too far into the uh, detail of that. Um, we also didn't really get to the bottom of a, a, of a conundrum, which is while a number of the parties are pr- promising extra money, they've also got very long shopping lists of additional things. And I, I, I've not seen a clearer exposition and we didn't get one today about how far that shopping list is counted you know counts against the eight billion that Simon has already spent in other words are we spending this money twice and I have a strong suspicion that for quite a proportion of that that's exactly what's being uh, planned the, the the other the final thing to say on the money is actually the eight billion is one thing the 22 billion pounds of efficiency that's required is quite another and I think actually that's a much more important uh, bit of the uh, of the future landscape that wasn't uh, that wasn't really uh, addressed and at the, the, the consideration of social care, I think, was, was, a, was a little inadequate. If we don't fix that, many of the problems that we've got will occur. Mark Porter, DNA. Well, let's, <clears throat> let's pick up on that, um, on where that 22 billion efficiency savings is going to be coming from. I mean, there's two ways in which the efficiency savings programme over the last five years has been delivered. Um, uh, and it's come from pay restraint for staff. And most of the parties are saying that cannot continue. And it's come from reducing the prices that the NHS pays for services. And that's pushing an increasing number of organisations into deficit and producing strain in the service uh, that is uh, like has never been seen before in terms of individual organisations pushed over the edge. It feels to people in those organisations as if it's a matter of policy to push them over that edge. And again, I think, although this wasn't explicitly um, looked at, I think most of the parties would say that that situation itself shouldn't continue. We shouldn't be trying to destabilise organisations. So we're back to our original question. Where do these efficiency savings come from over the next few years? And Mark, what would you say is different about this election to previous elections? Is there is anything strikingly different, or is this the same problems we've always faced? I think there's a I think there's two strikingly different things about this election. The first one is there is an obvious play among the parties for parts in coalition, much as at least two of the parties are insisting they will discuss nothing other than a majority government. I think there's a recognition in what people say all the time, and increasingly an explicit explicit recognition that there's going to have to be a process of negotiation following the general election. I think the other key thing 
um, is looking at the crisis, and I think that's a fair word to use, that the National Health Service and social care together face. We've never really looked before at putting the two services together as explicitly and as importantly as parties are now looking at. Bit of a failed attempt last time round when looking at social care that was itself the subject of party political game playing. This time round there's more of a unified vision but that's taking place against the backdrop of what parties are saying is an increasingly tight spending settlement. So I think there's some really interesting um, assumptions and thoughts about where the NHS is going to be going in integrating with social care and I think there's the, this explicit acknowledgement of another coalition government. Those are two really big differences to last time for me. Thank you very much. Anita Charlesworth, your general response to what you heard earlier. Well I think um, when you actually sit back from the uh, debate over the last two hours one of the things that's really striking is the amount of agreement there is on some of the key themes of policy. So um, the priority for mental health, um, <coughs> the fact that health and social care need to come together in a more fundamental way, and um, the need for much more local devolution about how care is delivered, even if what is delivered needs to be absolutely specified nationally. In fact, n none of the main parties was differing on that. Also, I think, although they differ about the amounts of money and timing, um, all parties recognise that the NHS will need more money. I think where you see, actually, though, all politicians really struggle is matching that vision, which everyone can um, buy into, with the reality of the NHS that they'll inherit and social care system um, if elected next month, which is a service under um, absolutely immense strain that's living week to week, really, in most organisations at the moment. And for me, the, the really big question is, over the last Parliament, they managed through tactical solutions, one-offs, yeah, and now the challenge for the next Parliament is to systematically get the NHS focused on improving its efficiency and changing the way it delivers care day in, day out. And, and I think no one really, on a political level, has a real sense of what their, the role of the politicians is in that. It is in that. Um, and so I'm quite optimistic for the medium term, but I really struggle to see how we get there. Just on that, what should be, in your mind, the role of the politicians? I think increasingly what we're understanding about changes is not big and structural. And so constancy of purpose, space to enact that uh, change, um, support, uh, really recognising that change never is effective immediately, and, and, and a provision of hope and vision. Uh, other things um, but it's a very different model to the way secretaries of state have seen their roles previously which is shopping lists of new policies which were fine when you had loads of money um, but aren't really the world we're in. Thank you. Jane Dacre. I suppose um, there are good things and there are bad things and um, starting with the good things it's very nice that people are so interested in us in the health service um, and it's very positive that people want to make the the NHS a big big feature of the election because I certainly think it's very important um, I think it's also encouraging that there is a reasonable amount of commonality between what what people say um, there are some common themes about integration about transforming care and about the need to be very clear about investment However, there are some really big challenges ahead and there are some really big challenges now in the medium term, in the longer term and in the even longer term, which perhaps haven't been um, fully articulated at the moment. 
Um, I think one of the problems for me is the concern about what effect a really big reorganisation would have. Just the term reorganisation makes the hairs stand up on the back of my neck after what happened last time. And I really worry about the negative effect of that because essentially it's distracting. I'm a coal-faced clinician. What I want to do is treat the patients in front of me very well. I do not want everybody to be distracted by moving the deck chairs around again. Do you believe uh, Andy Burnham when he says that you could repeal the Social Care Act, Health and Social Care Act, without a major reorganisation? I find it very difficult to understand how that would happen. Um, but a, a non-reorganisation, reorganisation, it, it must be possible, but I find it very difficult to, to, to see uh, how that would happen. I, th th there's one thing I think though that, that has been left out or not focused enough on, and that's public health. We're still talking about shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted. Um, and to mix my metaphors, we ought to be damming the river upstream not catching things downstream and there wasn't enough focus on that and again as a working um, physician I think that's that's really important and then finally money 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 where's it going to come from thank you very much Johnny Marshall from the NHS Confederation uh, I think definitely a sense that there was perhaps more heat than light really sort of underlining how political the NHS is at the moment, despite everyone's repeated comments to remove politics from the NHS from the panel, uh, and Norman's one offer to do that not being terribly well received by other members of the panel, I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, and almost a sense that the fact they agree by so by, agree about so much um, does therefore the way in which they try and differentiate themselves in terms of the political rhetoric actually then match the practical reality. I think we're actually running into a bit of trouble um, because they do agree on, on on so much, and therefore as they strive to differentiate themselves, we end up with, with this real tension between personalisation on the one hand that they all celebrate, and that really should allow uh, the, the public and, and, and local leaders in health and social care to, to identify need and new models of care and develop it from the bottom up and, a, and an appropriate workforce to deliver that care versus the national sort of need to actually be seen to be doing something and rescuing the NHS so that I get elected and therefore making decisions about numbers of staff in workforce that don't necessarily make, make sense. And, and, and the lack of passion around personalisation doing that at a local level I think is a real challenge. Thank Good. you very much. Can I ask then just um, anyone who wants to comment on this, who was most credible, do you think, on the affordability question? I'm looking to our two <coughs> economists here. Anita, who did you think was most credible on the affordability question? I think um, there's a real issue, obviously, about um, people not being prepared to commit over the five years. Um, the plan that Simon Stevens has, has laid out has only got a chance of working with some um, stability and certainty around uh, uh, funding. And so um, we um, do need politicians to be clear both about what they're doing next year, this year and next year, and where they're going to be going in, in five years' time. And actually most of them want to answer one or the other and not give the, 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 the full picture. Um, so that, I think, is... Uh, it, it, it is, is, is a real uh, problem, you know. Some will talk about five years, but you've no sense of what happens before then. Others, you know, it's it's here and now, but trust me, after then, um, I don't find... I mean, I, I think... Find that very no, 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 because, the, the you know, 
Sam Steve is absolutely right. Given the amount of public finances, the impact on other public services, the NHS has to try, has to try to deliver the numbers in the five-year forward view. But it will require a Herculean uh, effort and it will require um, long-term changes um, in the way we deliver care. And people can only do that with some kind of certainty, I think, around the, uh, around the funding and people's ability then to galvanise around that. Thank you very much. Nigel Edwards. It's, uh, it's not immediately clear that uh, where the Lib Dems funding comes in. There's a suggestion in the technical document published with the manifesto that actually it comes in later in the Parliament. And we, we all know that money that arrives in a big chunk tends to not be spent as well as money that's spread over. But actually, as Anita's saying, um, that really doesn't work because the quite a bit of the pressure is now. So um, Jeremy Hunt has hinted uh, in an uh, uh, interview with Health Service Journal that he too might could see some of that money being delayed. But Today, I think he was clearer that it is spread over the uh, the course of the uh, uh, course of the, the whole Parliament. Andy Burnham's money arrives in a big wadge. We're not sure how quickly because we don't know how quickly they can raise the mansion tax. But that's not going to be that as fast as I suspect uh, he, he may be assuming. But there's still this big gap where he won't. You get the feeling he would like to commit to the eight billion. You get the, the feeling that privately he might well say that. Uh, but but Ed Balls would be uh, after him if, if he were to uh, if he were to mention. That. So um, uh, I, I think there's an there's a unanswered question still about Labour not having signed up to that five-year plan. I agree with Anita that the 22 billion, the NHS will have to deliver that 22 billion. The issue is I'm not sure that we entirely know how. And just on that issue about the shopping list, the extra GPs, the extra nurses, in your view, is that outside the eight billion? Or well, is it's that not specified. So quite. Uh, the, the £30 billion is made up of a combination of uh, extra demand pressure from uh, the changes in the size and age structure of the population, uh, inflation, uh, special NHS in, uh, healthcare inflation, which tends to rise slightly above, uh, the GDP deflation, which is usually used to calculate that. Um, no one's mentioned the a little matter of £8 billion required for hepatitis C. Well, let's put that to, entirely to one side. But um, all of those pressures together add up to £8 billion. Some of that additional capacity to deal with the larger and, and more aged population does undoubtedly include more physicians, more GPs, more nurses, but we don't know what. There's no quantification of it. Uh, so that's why, hence my concern that there may be a degree of double counting. Um, but um, the other issue, of course, is um, uh, those may be in the pipeline. We can't guarantee that they'll actually, A, come out at the end of the pipeline, um, and that, B, when they do, that they, will, uh, that they will want to work for the NHS. Thank you very much. Other thoughts on the credibility of affordability? <laughs> If that was, oh. I was going to talk about something other than the money because that <laughs> otherwise could dominate the entire Okay, debate. we'll move, we'll move but, on. Just briefly, one more money question. So, thoughts on the affordability, Johnny I Marshall? Think the, the thing about is trying to manage, is, is trying to be very clear and honest about the consequences of the affordability. Uh, and thinking about this as we have 115 billion to 123 billion of healthcare money to spend and how we need to spend to deliver different models of care and different value. Uh, and I think a sense of what we'd really like to see from the national politicians is, is, I guess, an honest debate about the consequences of what that means in terms of seeing changes in service delivery, what you'd expect to be happening at a local level, how you might support that, rather than resisting change. I think there's a, an inevitability the NHS has not been great necessary at describing the benefits of change at a local level, a much greater sense of engagement with clinical commissioning group and how we can support them engaging with their public and thinking about what changes you would need to see locally for all of this affordability to play out. Uh, I, think, I think that's what we need, and I think it's still missing. 
Thank you. I think Jane. there's also something about the, the transition because we're being expected to completely change the way that we do things without any funding being put aside for that period of transition where there's bound to be some double running. So it's very hard to see how, how so the numbers continue usual, to add plus, up. Plus yes, business services. as usual, redesigning services for tomorrow with a workforce that was trained for yesterday and whilst not having any more money than was written in the five-year forward view makes it very difficult. There's no contingency. Thank you. Before we move away from money, Chris, Ham, you've just joined us. What's your feeling on uh, the question of where this money might come from? The Tories are saying it'll come from economic growth. The, um, the Labour and others are saying, well, that's going to only come from public, public health spending cuts. Mm. Well, so my view is that the money will have to be found from some source or other because NHS hospitals and providers don't go bankrupt. And when they run into deficit, you have to find money to pay staff, to treat patients and to pay suppliers. And that's what we've seen in the last three or four years. And I think the psychology among NHS leaders has changed. They know that when a majority of providers are in deficit and those deficits are getting bigger, you know, this is learned behaviour, isn't it? Department of Health and Treasury and others will find money down the back of a sofa somewhere and give it to them to make ends meet because what's the alternative? You cannot go bankrupt in those circumstances. So I think where the money comes from is an important question, but actually it's a second order question to understanding the reality of the NHS and the money having to be there in some shape or form. I think the issues you were talking about, I would agree with. The phasing of the extra eight billion, if that's what the number is, it needs to come in sooner rather than later because the NHS is projecting a deficit in this new financial year. If you believe NHS providers, which could be about two billion pounds, and that's a large sum of money, even with the additional commitment in the autumn statement. There is the question, too, of how you will fund seven-day working and more doctors and nurses, and you know, all of that comes with a hefty price tag. And we go back to the question of social care, because you know, ADAS has said probably the funding gap there will be about four billion on top of the NHS eight billion by 2020. So I think the challenge for the new government is the here and now issues. It's not the kind of theoretical things about when 2020 funding will come from or where it comes from. It's how you keep the show on the road and fund the NHS to deliver today's job, let alone fund the future commitments. And just on that, did people feel that anyone had a solution to the problem of general practice, the uh, recruitment, the ret early retirement, the demoralisation of GPs at the moment? Uh, it's fair to say not really. They're, they're, all, they're all making promises about essentially relieving the pressure by recruiting more general practitioners. Uh, and that ignores two terrible facts about general practice today. One, uh, there are lots of them, but the two that I was thinking of is, firstly, that many of the training schemes are not filled. People are not choosing to go into general practice. They're actively choosing to avoid it when they graduate from medical school. And the reason for that, I think, is in large part the uh, onslaught upon general practitioners that many people feel and understand. Uh, an onslaught by a government that doesn't value their work and continually talks about them needing to do more because they're all... <coughs> Uh, operating under a contract that should never have been signed uh, and secondly from uh, the press that keeps put piling pressure on in terms of making it very personal about it being down to the failings of individual doctors that the service as a whole in their area is failing. The, uh, so people are choosing, new doctors, young doctors are choosing not to go into general practice. The other thing we, find, we see is the increasing burden upon general practitioners 
Now, it's a burden felt by many doctors in many places, but I have to say that the, the narratives I hear from our members who are general practitioners are frankly horrifying about the, uh, the way that workload increases, but the funding and resources to match it doesn't. As technology gets, uh, gets more advanced, as the, what we can do for patients becomes more, uh, more invasive, as the offer that we make in terms of the care that we give to patients relies more and more on communication, diagnostics, and uh, the provision of facilities that would never been thought of a few decades ago. We find that people are being expected essentially to look after the same sort of service but with, sorry, the same sort of, uh, using the same resources to look after a much radically changed service. And people, frankly, are voting for, with their feet, deciding to leave general practice, leave the country, uh, retire early, and all of the apocalyptic <coughs> things that one can say. And briefly, Mark, <coughs> what, what would your solution be? And did any of the parties seem to offer, the, offer a solution? I, I'm not sure they have, and I think, I, I think we're probably looking in the wrong place, if we look a few weeks before a general election, for people to make good and supportive noises about valuing a workforce. Now, I tried to push them into doing that, and we may talk about the incredible Twitter bomb that was Andy Burnham's announcement about pay today. But nevertheless, a few weeks before a general election is really the place to hear politicians talk about fiscal responsibility on the one hand and fantastic new promises on the other. It's not the place to do what they should have started doing years ago, which is valuing the staff who deliver the service to patients and communities up and down the country. And it's that thing that needs to be worked on patiently rather than made the subject of a sudden announcement. Thank you. Johnny Marshall. As, as a GP, still two days a week, I, I guess I have a personal experience of this. And, and I think the parties have a sort of differing level of understanding of perhaps some of the solutions. I think th some of the discussion about integrated different types of organisations, I think, reflects the fact the nature of what GPs are seeing on a day-to-day -day basis is different from what it, what it was 20 years ago. And whereas it probably was totally manageable within the primary healthcare team, now those needs are met within a much bigger team. And the connections between general practice and the voluntary sector and social care and community <coughs> services is not as strong as it needs to to be to really make sure we're integrating care for those individual people. So that sense of thinking about new models of care that take the real strength and the value of general practitioners of what we really want them to be doing and put them in part of a wider team where, where, where their place is clear uh, but other people are working with them, I think that's where some of the solution lies. Then we can work out whether we have enough of them or not, but we've really got to try and get that model much more integrated. Jeremy Taylor. Um, I think it was interesting how little the debate focused on patients. <laughs> Uh, quality and outcome. So in many ways it was a debate that followed very traditional tram lines in a health debate around the money and around the inputs that it will buy, but not the actual quality of the care that it will buy. And I found that a little bit disappointing. And even when there was um, some welcome focus on, for example, social care and mental health, the debate was around the funding of social care, not what kind of social care we want, uh, and access to mental health services, not what kind of mental health services we want. So uh, it, it led me to wonder whether they have an insufficiently clarified vision about the kind of quality of care and outcomes that we want. Um, so uh, I don't think patients would have come up much if I hadn't asked a question about how should patients be involved in decisions about their care and what would they do about it. And I thought the different answers to that, that question were quite revealing. Uh, more than anything else, revealing about the lack of certainty about a model of change, what you would need to do as a politician to put in place uh, the conditions for greater 
democracy, if you like, in healthcare, greater patient involvement, which we know is an important factor in, in quality. So Jeremy Hunt talks about the importance of care coordination and clinical accountability. People have been talking about this for a very long time, but it hasn't necessarily changed. Andy Burnham talks about new rights in the NHS constitution uh, for patient involvement and other things. Very, very interesting. But we've had an NHS constitution since 2009. It hasn't noticeably made any difference to anything. Norman Lamb talked about personal health budgets, which are still, after several years, a small-scale experiment in the NHS. So, it, so they've all got good ideas. They all like the idea of patient involvement. Not enough passion around it to have a debate and argument between them about it. And uh, really unconvincing uh, mechanisms that would actually make a difference in practice. And that... that is a cause for some concern. And what did you think of Norman Lamb's request that there be a, a commission uh, to create a new <coughs> debate with the public on uh, you know, a new contract, if you like, about health and social care? I, I quite liked that, um, although you always have to wonder what it will lead to. So I think, you know, in the last Parliament we had the Dilnock Commission, which was the nearest equivalent to a cross-party, non-partisan approach to sorting out social care funding, and it made some advances. It hasn't solved all the problems. So I think you could say, in the last Parliament, a precedent was set for the possibility of doing something like that uh, that might deliver some output. So I, I, I think it was quite an interesting proposition. Chris Ham. I was going to agree with what Johnny said. I think... Yeah, characterising the debate as we need 8,000 more GPs or whatever the number is far too narrow if we're thinking about the future of primary health care. It's going to be about the teams of people who deliver that care, not just the GPs. And I don't know anybody who's thought about this seriously who thinks we'll get anywhere near recruiting 8,000 more GPs by 2020, <coughs> so for that reason alone. But there are two other things. One is um, we need to think about the use, the better use of technology in enabling people to access primary care advice from the right person at the most convenient time to them. I thought what Norman had to say about the group health model in Seattle began, began to take us into that territory. We need to have a more serious debate about different routes into primary care and the full team. Uh, and nobody's yet mentioned the emerging interest in federations and networks of practices, you know, happening spontaneously in all parts of the country, which is really encouraging because I think GP leaders locally are saying this has to be the right thing to do. And if we collaborate rather than the way that the out-of-hours cooperatives used to do many moons ago, but not just out-of-hours, but in-hours too, then we can use the people and the resources we've got at the moment much, much more effectively to improve working lives of the primary care teams, but also to improve patient experience in those teams. And it was disappointing not to hear anybody on the panel mention that. And what about, Jane Dacre, the idea of a 7-7 health system? Uh, consultant well, delivered and uh, consultant run. I mean, the numbers don't add up, so so there there is a problem with that. But there's no doubt that there are problems with morbidity and mortality at weekends. So we have to find a way to do it. Um, I, I want to pick up on, on something that Chris and Mark ha have alluded to, though, which is about valuing the workforce, because there is compelling evidence um, that if you have uh, a valued workforce who feel that they're listened to, who feel that they're in control of what they do, that within the NHS, um, if you have good NHS um, staff survey results, you have improved mortality, you can reduce length of stay, etc., etc. So the key to part of this for the benefit of the patients is, is to value the workforce. And so to, to invest 
in people rather than talk about the money. Now, we see amongst the physicians that nobody wants to be a medical registrar. We've heard that nobody wants to be a GP. Um, A&E is, is on its knees. The next people, so, so you get your crisis in primary care, then it goes to A&E, then it goes into the acute sector, then it starts stopping operations that, that orthopedic surgeons uh, want to do, and then you can't get your patients out at the end. So what that does is result in significant demoralization. So to be fair, Andy Burnham did say give hope back to the workforce. And Jeremy did uh, talk about valuing the workforce but there's no there's no meat on that there's no real um feeling of the ability to achieve that behind the passion and that wouldn't necessarily cost an awful lot of money and do you think the workforce is is um sufficiently uh motivated if you like to change the way we do things to actually do things differently you talked earlier about the business as usual versus the redesign. Have we got a sense amongst doctors and nurses, do you think, that they can deliver new ways of working? I think that there is a sense that we cannot continue in the way that we are doing. There's an understanding that the vision for the future has to change. Uh, people have an appetite for transformation, but they can't work out exactly how to do it because they're so downtrodden and they just aren't, there isn't enough air cover, there isn't enough time, space, dialogue to be creative and to, to, to move forward with these solutions. We tried with our Future Hospitals programme, we're going to push that, we're trying to make it into a social movement, we have to get people on board to, to, to make that change, but it's an, it's an uphill struggle. Yeah, I want to link together what Jeremy has said about patients and, and, and Jane and Mark's contribution and, and Christian's laughing because I think what it revealed in some ways is a debate that was a bit backward looking. It was very focused actually on um, a, a model of care which, you know, um, patient engagement when they are the, you know, with, when with chronic diseases, they're actually the primary giver of their own care. The fact that actually the, the way health needs are changing means that we don't just need 8,000 more uh, doctors doing exactly the same as, as they were. This fundamentally, we're going through a process in a very messy way of trying to figure out how um, uh, the service engages with individuals to help them live with and manage care. And, and we know that's profoundly different for individuals and it's profoundly different for the healthcare um, uh, deliverers, staff and, and, and organisations. And I think that that acknowledgement actually that the task going forward is fundamentally different and that's not driven by politics you know there's under underlying uh, uh, change there you didn't see coming through in the debate did you it's still about a sort of 20th century healthcare system johnny marshall i think there's a real challenge for us professionally uh, mm -hmm. around new models of care that are set to deliver outcomes that we might not determine that people might determine rather than activity mm -hmm. and i think you saw that played through in the political debate about activity you should have two hearing aids rather than the right to be able to hear and communicate and converse so somehow we've got to work out what what, is, what, what, do, we, what do we mean by outcomes and activity mm -hmm. and when we do we really mean activity and we've just got to do that and therefore how much space is there to really have personalized outcomes so it's like focusing on transport rather than trains, the yeah. mechanism being the secondary thing, the outcome. So let, let's be clear about what, what it is, what is the standard, what, what are we trying to achieve from an outcome perspective rather than from an activity perspective. It's really tough and hard, it's hard at, at a local level and it's hard at a national level. I think you see that playing out both professionally and politically at the moment.
Jeremy Taylor. Sorry, just building on Anita and Johnny's point, when Sarah Montague pressed the panellists on would they expect everything that the NHS is currently doing to carry on being done in the future? They were they very reluctant yes. <laughs> to engage with exactly that issue that actually what we want is good health outcomes, but how we deliver them and the stuff that we actually do uh, might be quite different because the world changes. I think there's a, there's a well-worn, well-trodden political discourse around health and all of them are incredibly nervous about treading away from it. You were expecting them to say, we're going to stop doing something, were you? No, I wasn't surprised. It is revealing how difficult it is for politicians to get off the traditional tram lines. Yeah. I'm not blaming them. Isn't a great vote winner, really, is it? The other thing they seemed unwilling to get into was this business about, although the Labour Party is very clear they're going to stop the marketisation, uh, there, there was a general, so they say, there was a general sense that they didn't want to get into this public-private debate. Did you feel that, Nigel? Yes, I mean, they, parked I, it. they did. And actually, you know, I don't find Andy Burnham's, uh, um, and did, I think Lib Dems have got something to say about this, account of how the legislative changes they're proposing would, would, would stop the market mechanisms and procurement and the variety of other things that we've got now, uh, that convincing. I think it will require a more significant change, particularly to the status of foundation trusts than uh, he, was, he, was, he, he was allowing. Um, well, could we just <coughs> briefly unpick that? Because I think there a lot of people came away with not quite understanding what would it mean to repeal the health and well, social care. Well, it doesn't actually solve the problem, actually. That, that act doesn't change the fact that we are subject to EU new EU procurement rules. Uh, it doesn't change the fact that, that, that foundation trusts are regarded as enterprises for the purposes of, competi of, of competition rules. Um, uh, so you've, you actually have to some extent done a rather odd thing, which is you may well have moved jurisdiction on uh, mergers and, and, and market structure from Monitor, which is a, supposed to be an expert regulator for the health sector, to a more general regulator, or even to the European Court of Justice, and, the, and, and, and uh, that, that was clearly not, it would not be anyone's intention. Uh, on the procurement side, the, ru the rule is, it, while, these, uh, while organisations are independent and operating as independent enterprises, they, they, they need to be their services need to be tended for, um, and the only way to solve that is to create a sort of single entity where you contract internally. It's not an external market. But actually, it still doesn't solve the problem because there would still, even in that scenario, be quite a lot of independent and voluntary sector providers. And they're very incoherent on this. You know, So, for example, the, the promise to cap the profits on, um, on, on private providers. I can't see the way you can write legislation that would not apply to some of the super, super partnerships that we're seeing emerging, for example. Um, you know, so there's a degree of sort of... You feel a bit of crowd-pleasing with the policy without it necessarily... Necessarily be anyone having done the the back the, the yeah. difficult backroom work to actually work it out, and when that hits the civil servants, they'll go, well, <coughs> well, Minister, I think you may find this is rather difficult. And, I think and the only way to understand well, that is to is to remember that the the call to repeal the Health and Social Care Act 2012 is being picked up in many places as effectively a not a cover as effectively a statement of the desire to remove competition and market mechanisms from the National Health Service as currently constituted and if you simply repealed the act the NHS would stop business because the act wouldn't cover delivering an NHS there wouldn't be one anymore so you have to interpret what that means and I, I'm with Nigel in saying I think Labour has its heart in the right place on this by saying this is what it intends to do but it hasn't thought out Labour policy hasn't thought out um, well enough how 
the legislative change that they're talking about leads to the actual change that they want to see, and I should say many millions of people want to see, which is the removal of competition and market mechanisms from the English NHS. There are a variety of ways in which you can do it. Labour policy at the moment, uh, I don't think they mention it today, but I think it's fairly clear about using the existing structures but making them work in a different way. And Nigel touched on that just now by, making, by, by talking about it's the way that the structures that deliver health are legally defined as independent organisations that bring in all of this procurement legislation and so forth that is actually the thing that stops us being able to achieve what many people would say is a very clear and obvious policy objective of reducing or removing competition. And it's really being able to articulate the difference between the slogan and the actual change a government would make. So I don't think any of the parties that want to do this are able to do, and of course the current, concert, the current coalition government, if returned to office, would presumably carry on without doing that. So what I'm worried about here is it feels awfully like the debate we had five years ago around Mr Lansley's grand plan for the NHS, and we're talking about some very technical issues around legislation that bear very little relationship to what GPs, physicians, clinicians, frontline staff are working on today, let alone you know, back to the idealism, what does this mean for patients? within the service, you know, if we get this wrong, <coughs> new government, we could spend another two or three years being sidetracked into second, third order issues when actually, you know, the ship we're sailing in is, is sinking by the hour. I think there's one thing that does need to be specifically mentioned, and that's one thing that Jeremy Hunt said about what the current government has stepped back and given the power and authority to doctors, and I think he specifically mentioned general practitioners. I think if you did a poll of GPs as to whether they have they feel that they have the power and authority in the health service, you'd find there's a real gap there between the perception of the politicians and the perception of the clinicians. Can I just ask the panel then, given the fact that on May the 8th we are almost certainly going to have a situation of coalition government negotiation around a whole host of issues, how, how much of an issue will health be and how do we see that playing out? Jeremy. Well, I think health is bound to be an issue for all the reasons we've been discussing. We have a system that isn't fully functioning, that is horribly underfunded, uh, with no obvious solution. Uh, and the, the show not only needs to be kept on the road, but it needs to be uh, improved uh, in a way that um, in, um, in, improves outcomes and commands public uh, confidence. <laughs> so um, health, is, uh, health and social care are going to be issues for any incoming government. But the issue will not be, as they, if they sit down to have a conversation about a coalition, health is unlikely to be very near the top of anybody's list of things that they're trading favours on. Yes. Uh, I mean, it would be, would, be my, would be my guess. I mean, the, 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 an SNP Labour conversation might well uh, feature conversations about uh, Section 75 and the, uh, and the role of competition and the, and, and the private sector, but it's not near, it's, it's no one's red line issue. It's not the thing, it's, and in fact we saw from the 2010 coalition, they almost, in Nick Timmins' account, almost forgot uh, about healthcare. Uh, oh yeah, we better say something about this in the coalition agreement. So I think that, that, that from the point of view of NHS observers, the, the, uh, you know, it will take a little time for the heat and, and dust of the coalition negotiation to emerge, and it won't be the focus. I would have thought. Uh, I wonder what others think, but I would not have thought that the parties are going to be focusing on health as a t as a top line issue, and certainly uh, UKIP won't be. Uh, Anita, uh, I was going to say I think there are. Uh, two conversations which are will be more um, important for the um, uh, next couple of years than the um, uh, 
uh, deals over forming a coalition. One, obviously, will be the conversation between whoever becomes Secretary of State for Health and whoever becomes Chancellor of the Exchequer and what the uh, future Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, feels about um, all of this. The second is what the conversation is between the future Secretary of State and Simon Stevens and system leaders are, because the, the alignment that I think will probably be most crucial and the relationship will be most crucial for the ability to the NHS to deliver will be um, that relationship between Simon Stevens and the, and the, and the Secretary of State. We need um, strong NHS leadership through the next five years. We cannot get by uh, without that. And that need, lead, leader needs real strong support from their Secretary of State. I think the question around that then, agreeing with everything that Anita's just said, is... To what extent would a Labour-led coalition or a Labour minority government, for example, continue to support the five-year forward view and Simon Stevens' leadership in the way that the Conservatives and Lib Dems have done? We know, for instance, not talking about personalities here, that Andy Burnham has expressed concerns about the greater independence that NHS England has assumed if he were minded to bring it back into the Department of Health rather in the way it was before. Now, what would that do to uh, Simon Stevens' very visible personal leadership around these issues in future? And uh, would he be able to continue on the path he's already set out? Um, I agree with, with Nigel that, that, that there isn't going to be agreement. And, um, but I think that we should turn a negative into a positive and we should seize the day. Because if there is a government that, that is divided and doesn't necessarily know what's right, then surely that's the opportunity for us around this table to start telling people what we think the health service should do. We've always... Um, We've always had difficulty in doing that before because as a group, particularly perhaps I'll, I'll talk about my own group, as a group of physicians or as a group of, of doctors, we have great difficulty singing in harmony. Mm -hmm. If we could work out between us what the core issues were and we then get a government that's divided or weak or fighting about something else, then surely we're in a really good position to move things forward positively. Uh, and, and I would make a plea to colleagues to say, look, if we sing in harmony, um, we know what's right uh, for, for the service. We will work with patients as we have been doing in the College of Physicians for 500 years to try and move things forward. So we need all colleges commission, not an all-party commission. <laughs> we do. We, do. You, we need the, re the, the support of the people that are actually working actively with patients currently. I, I think that's right, Jane. We don't have control over the outcome of the election. We don't have control over the coalition or how important the NHS will be to them. We do have control over what we can provide as a joined-up voice. I think it's not just about health care. Uh, we need to make sure that social care, uh, local authorities are part of that. And also we've absolutely got that sort of public yeah. engagement. I mean, if, if Norman is saying a commission looking at this would be valuable, I think the sense of us being able to come, come together and actually have a collective voice on some of the key issues and things that the support that we can provide to an incoming government but also some of the challenge being honest about them. We have some control over that. At least, at least we could do that, whatever the outcome is. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm thinking back, and we were talking about the Health and Social Care Act just now, and I'm thinking back to the tremendous and obvious unifying consensus that there was amongst the medical profession and indeed the wider health workforce about the uh, necessity of, or otherwise, of introducing the Health and Social Care Act. And I'm not sure I'm convinced that we'll be able to <coughs> suddenly discover the um, the health professionals' consensus the day after the next general election. I think, aside from uh, aside from the fact that we're all rooted in 
our society, and we all have all of our bodies have members that vote individually in different ways. Uh, I think there is a uh, that's a fertile field to start arguments about what the most important priority is. What the first thing to be done is okay. We can all agree what should happen in 2050, but let's see what should happen in 2015. Might be the thing that's more difficult to achieve consensus on. Um, that being said wouldn't be so utopian, but it is a good ideal to aim for. The, I think it is undoubtedly true that the best changes happen and the best ability to think about things happens when we stop trying to descend into the politics of the here and now, but we start to we keep we keep our focus on the values of what it is that we came into the service to deliver, the values that patients expect from a service, the value that society expects from a health service that has been effectively there with a little, a little articulated, um, sorry, not very well articulated, not very often articulated founding ideal, which is still true today that we'll try and deliver healthcare organised in such a way so that if you fall ill. A, we'll look after you quite well, and B, we won't impoverish you in the process. We haven't succeeded in both of those, but we set out to do it, or our forefathers set out to do it. And it's being able to focus on things like that, and I appreciate I'm going into my own little utopian riff at the moment, but effectively by saying that the one thing we should try to keep politicians' mind on is that thing that we're all there for, that thing that we're trying to offer to the people, rather than trying to say, well, of course, the consensus is that we have to have this change or that change. They are going to arrogate to themselves the right to abolish organisations and create other organisations <coughs> and move money from one part of the system to the other. And we need to try to keep them away from tinkering with too many of those levers and causing too much problem and damage. Thank you. And I'm going to give the last word to our patient voice, Jeremy Taylor. So we've heard a debate that's been about traditional health debate stuff, money, numbers of doctors, numbers of nurses, uh, structures. Uh, what we really need is a focus on the outcomes that really matter to patients and communities, uh, the quality and outcomes of health and social care. Uh, that is the challenge that I think faces any incoming government. Thank you very much indeed for taking part. If you're listening to this, please do respond on BMJ Rapid Responses.